0: reconnect with your inner sense of safety grounding and centeredness learn more today at eomega.org/thrive
1: From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Perdita Finn, is the co-founder with her husband, Clark Strand, of the non-denominational international fellowship called The Way of the Rose. Perdita and Clark were guests on this podcast a few years ago to discuss their book, The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary. Perdita has studied with many spiritual teachers and has apprenticed with the psychic Susan Saxman, and we're going to talk to her about that, with whom she wrote a book called The Reluctant Psychic. Perdita's new book is Take Back the Magic, Conversations with the Unseen World. And the book is a must read recommendation in Spirituality Health magazine. Perdita Finn, welcome back to the Spirituality and Health podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me on, Rami. It feels it feels like an incredible bookend that the last time I talked with you was just before the COVID shutdown. So it really feels like having come on quite a journey over the past couple of years.
1: Yeah, it has been that to say the least. <laughs> so, you know, you can tell us how that has impacted you and how maybe the the way of the rose or the the path of the divine mother can, is going to come up in this conversation and how the rosary maybe helped you get through COVID <laughs> and beyond. But I want to start with really one of the opening sentences of Take Back the Magic, Conversations with the Unseen World, that really, I guess, surprised me is, is the best word I can come up with. Let me read you what you wrote and then help us understand this. So this is a quote from the book. In times past, we could not have denied the daily presence of the dead in our lives. Those we love would have been buried nearby in the village cemetery, or even in our own backyards. We would have passed their graves frequently, tended their tombstones, and stopped by for the occasional chat. In those days, the bodies of our ancestors were close. The implication for, you know, of that sentence is that for most of us, those days are long gone. So I mentioned to you before we started recording that I'm going to do the unveiling of the tombstone for my mom, which in Judaism you do about a year after the uh-huh. burial. And she is buried along with my grandparents and my dad at a cemetery, I don't know, 45 minutes from I mean, my sister's house, and we all lived in the same neighborhood where my sister still lives. So it's not convenient, and the cemetery is sprawling and it's confusing, trying to find the gravestones and you know the graves and all that. It's definitely not what you're describing. So what do you what do you think we've lost by the way we bury people today?
2: Well, I don't know that I have prescriptions about what we should be doing with the burial of our ancestors, but I think, you know, as that introduction continues, people used to feel like they knew where their bones belonged (laughs) and, you know, that they belonged to the earth and the earth belonged to them and that the earth was the body of their ancestors and they would become part of that body when we died and that. Stories would be told about us. We would we would walk the land of our ancestors and know the stories of our ancestors. And these days, it's really hard to know where we belong and where what land we belong to. You know, if you're lucky, you do have a family plot these days where you have parents and grandparents. But you know, in truth, you know our our ancestors tend to be scattered. Some here, some there, and. Some on the wind and nobody even quite knows where we are or what it means to belong to the land. People will often say when they come into Zoom meetings over the past couple of years, they will identify the native or indigenous peoples who lived there prior to European colonization. But even those names are fairly recent names, right? Those are, you know, whether the Lenape or the Lakota, you know. There have been people living on this continent for 25,000 years whose names we don't know. And what of the plants and animals who lived there? What would it feel like to belong to the land again? I, my own feeling is that when we belong to the dead, we begin to know where our bones belong again.
1: You know, when we think about belonging to the land, I mean, I don't, I don't belong to the land If I define land as a, oh, I don't know. I mean, I I live in Tennessee. I don't feel any real connection to the odd shaped plot called Tennessee on a map, you know, but I do feel connection to land slash earth with a capital E earth (laughs) or even earth with a lowercase e, just dirt. And, And I'm always struck by, and maybe I'm taking this too far off, but. You know, in the in the first chapter of Genesis, when people are created in that myth story, they're created out of thin air. You know, the God character just says, let's mm. create people and bang, people are created and there's no sense of body. There's no sense of right. physicality. They're just created. And later, the commentators say later when God creates, it says clothes, it'll be translated as clothes, but it says skins for them. Some commentators say oh they didn't even have skin they you know it wasn't it wasn't skins like Fred and Wilma Flintstone skins it was you know they they imagine they actually got you know dermis skins like we have the skin were,
2: bag right <laughs> yeah
1: right a skin bag but the second chapter of genesis the the earthling is drawn out of the earth and right. then consciousness is breathed in, into the earthling and so the earthling is is the earth made conscious self-aware and then the mission of the earthling is to protect and serve the earth so in that second story i have i have no real connection personally to the first but in the second chapter of genesis in that story i, I sort of feel the connection is to the earth itself whether i'm living in tennessee or or i grew up in massachusetts or you know if i'm if i'm some other part of the planet far from you know, where from the United States, it's all the same earth, and I am earth made conscious. Does that resonate with you and what you experience? it
2: It does so much. And yet I also, you know, every bit of earth is different, isn't it? You know, I mean, and I grew up on the ocean near Massachusetts, you know, on the sandy shores, the flat scrub pines, the smell of swamp maples and, you know, hermit crabs and that land, that bit of earth, that dirt, that muck, that fertile muck is so different than the, the hemlock trees and the cedar trees and the white pines of the mountains and the moss-covered mountains where I live now. And what I love is that all of those different places have different flavors and different experiences of the dead and that the dead are not just like one amorphous something. They are individuals. Sometimes I tell people, go outside and grab some dirt wherever you are. uh, You know, even if you're in the city, go find one of those poor little pine tree, you know, one of those trees growing out of the cement and get some dirt from its roots. And you're really literally holding the bodies of the dead when you hold the earth in your hand. You're holding the bodies of vanished plants, uh, vanished trees, vanished insects, vanished stones that were once oceans. So every bit of dirt is the bodies of the dead and those bodies bear us up and we all grow from that dirt and we all become that dirt again. You know, we say ashes to ashes, but really it's dirt to dirt, I think. Yeah. That's what I'd rather said at my funeral, dirt to dirt.
1: Yeah, which is it's it's sort of sad the way We then take the word dirt and we turn it into dirty. Absolutely. And and we give it such a negative connotation. I don't know when that happened. I didn't think to look in my Oxford English Dictionary to trace how we got from dirt, which seems so positive, uh, especially the way you're talking about it to dirty, which seems so, you know, pornographic. Oh, that's dirty. We do the same thing with smell. You go, oh, that stinks. But really, how? Yeah. Well, it's it's the be... sorting
2: out of good into bad, isn't it? A lot of times, yeah. people, when I talk about dirt, they say, "Oh, aren't you really talking about soil or hummus? And I say, "No, I'm talking about dirt because I don't want to leave anything out."
0: Yeah.
2: And we I want to include the plastics and the garbage dumps, and the, we got to include everything. We yeah. we are part of everything, and and we've got to really kind of embrace it all. You know, it's in those those things that we want to leave out that sometimes the most fertile things are happening.
1: Yeah. Both physically, psychologically, the shadow side. Right. And, and spiritually. It's the things that we want to leave out, which you can't leave out, so you repress them. And they, what could be the most creative parts of ourselves, become repressed and become dangerous because we don't, we don't integrate them. Right. So so let's switch from, because there's so much in your book that I can't make, I can't work this conversation logically. We're going to have to make leaps. Okay. And I want to leap from dirt to ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts, but I've (laughs) seen ghosts.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe in much other than dirt, but I have also experienced ghosts.
1: (laughs) So tell us about your first encounter with a ghost and what do you make of it?
2: Well, I think we're all... Always having encounters with the dead. And I think I think such encounters used to be people's ubiquitous experience. And that conversation with the ancestral realm was how people navigated their days. It was how they found food and shelter and warmth and healing and love and and everything. That that it was a kind and the conversation with the ancestral realm was the same as the conversation with the natural world. And those were kind of seamless conversations. So I think the modern idea of the ghost or the haunting is very much an idea that emerges out of our need to make people frightened of the conversation with the other side, and and that was really, you know, that has has a long history of spiritual authority trying to get people to stop talking to the dead and listen to them instead, and. When we get our guidance from, I always say the dead are so much more trustworthy than the living. <laughs> Put me in a haunted house, but keep me from a boardroom with reasonable men. You know, the living terrify the bejesus out of me. I am genuinely scared of the living all the time, but I am not scared of the dead. But the dead can be frightening sometimes because it's hard to get the attention of modern people. And the media has for centuries been trying with their propaganda campaign to make us frightened of those encounters, fearful of them. And they can be startling. But once we get into conversation with the other side, and that's what my book is about, then they become much less frightening. So I tell a story in my book, I think this is what you're referring to, when we first moved to the Catskill Mountains, which are mountains famous for being haunted, you know, from Rip Van Winkle and the stories of, you know, the Dutch sailors playing nine pins, ninepins, the, their ghosts sending booming sounds to the valleys. And in fact, it was not a place where the indigenous people lived. They came here for ceremonies. So there, there, there is a feeling of kind of spiritual magic here in these mountains. And we moved here when my son was just born and my daughter was three. And one night early on in the winter, like, a husband was upstairs asleep. My daughter was upstairs asleep, and I was downstairs by the fire, rocking the baby, and I finally gotten him to go down. And I know Ezra's listening with an eighteen month old, so he knows what a miracle moment that is when the baby finally falls asleep. And the whole house was dark. It was late winter, and it was very quiet outside, and we're in the middle of the mountains, so it was very dark, and just the light of the fire. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a woman standing beside me. And I would have screamed at the top of my lungs if I hadn't just gotten the baby to sleep. It was that real and that startling and terrifying. And, but I just got the baby to sleep and no way was I gonna let him wake up. So I was just frozen, you know, chills going from one end of my body to the other. And all of what transpired that I'm describing to you took place probably in seconds. I was first frightened, and then I knew who she was. And for whatever reason, whether it was the darkness or the night or the kind of fact that the portal had recently been open for me as a young mother, I think, you know, when you give birth, the portal opens. I was receptive to this moment. And I knew I had a choice between fear... And, you know, saying something to get her to go away or, you know, telling her to go away and trust and faith. Because I knew in that moment she was my son's mother from another life. I could feel it. I could feel tremendous sorrow beside me that all she wanted was to touch him and look at him again. And there was this moment where I thought, you know, if she were the mother and I were the shade, what would I want? And so as improbable as it is, I said, you can hold him, but you have to hold him. You have to be his fairy godmother. You have to help me take care of this precious baby. And at that moment, I felt her wrap her body around my son's body and hold him. I mean, it was, you know, I, my husband and I are very, you know, we talk about a lot of spiritual matters, but I was even sort of reluctant to share it with him the next morning. It felt so impossibly strange. And I was, you know, ready to dismiss it as kind of, you know, overactive imagination. I'm not getting enough sleep. you know. <laughs> oh, gosh, you know, what's the matter with me? And I probably forgot about it you know, in many ways, I have two young kids. I immersed myself in the realities of young parenthood. And it was about four or five months later, I was headed down to my brothers on the train in Westchester. And I had a three-year-old and a baby, big fat baby, and a, and, and diaper bags and sippy cups and all manner of things. And <clears throat> I knew when we got into the station that there's a gap between the train and the platform. And I wouldn't be able to lift my daughter over the gap like I usually did because of holding the baby and all these things. And I said, I'm holding her hand and I looked at her. And I said, Sophie, you know, you're going to have to jump. You have to be a very big girl and you have to look at your feet and you're going to have to jump over this gap. I felt very panicked about her doing this. And so the train slides into the station and I'm looking at my daughter and the doors slide open and The gap is about one and a half inches wide, and she easily steps over it. It's no big deal at all. But my son starts to scream. And what I hadn't been noticing was that his hand was on the door of the train as it opened, and his arm had gotten swallowed into the sleeve of the train. And I screamed, and everyone started screaming. And... You know, people were saying, call 911. We got to stop the train, get the conductor. Somebody scooped up my daughter. I'm screaming. The conductors are yelling at me. Don't touch. Don't pull. He's going to lose his arm. We've got to get the ambulances here. We're going to call the hospital. We're going to alert them that you're bringing him in. I mean, it was terrifying. I mean, terrifying. And and my baby is crying and my daughter is crying and going, Mommy, Mommy, is our baby going to die? You know, and everyone's crying and all these conductors and policemen come out and they decide to manually open the door and they've got the ambulance and the emts are there and they've let me know that they're immediately going to put on a tourniquet and we're going to immediately go to the hospital and they start to slide open the door and he's fine his arm is fine not a scratch everybody cheers And the police take me. I'm a puddle to my brother's house. And I tell the story and everybody, you know, listens. And much later that night, after both kids were asleep beside me and I'm in the darkness, I remembered the woman who'd showed up. And in the darkness, I said to her, you know, big help you were. I thought your job was going to be to protect my son. And I heard a voice as clearly as I've ever heard a voice in my life. And she said back to me, look at his arm. I've never stopped calling on her. He's a daredevil, he's 27 now. She does incredibly risky things all the time and I call on her every day to take care of him.
0: Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive.
1: it's such a powerful story i mean it i mean hearing you tell it <clears throat> even more powerful than than the way you write it in the book i have to say i, I i'm going to share with you a much shorter story because i our listeners should know that not all of these ghost stories are so powerful and dramatic i was i was once working as a business consultant and i was working the night shift at a factory And I got back to my, it was like a a very small hotel in a small town. And it was, I don't know, three in the morning and I was exhausted and there was only one parking space and it was clearly, it wasn't handicapped, but it wasn't supposed to be used. It was marked for somebody else. And I said, oh my God, if they're not going to park now, they're not going to be parking here for the next few hours. And I'm just going to park because I don't know where to go to park and I just don't have the energy. So I parked the car, I got out and I looked uh, toward the hotel and it's really just a big house. And on the second floor, there's this woman looking out and she is not happy. (laughs) I mean, she's she's sort of dressed, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, she looks like the figure in the first Ghostbusters movie in the library. I mean, she's (laughs) got that long dress and she's like really... And she's just, she's just shaking her head and, and making it clear that I'm not supposed to park there. And I'm miming to her like, look, lady, it's late. What are you doing up? I shouldn't even be up. I'm parking here, you know, and I'll fix the problem in the morning. And I go in and there's no one in the hotel. Everyone's sleeping, but there's no one at the desk. I just go up to my room and I just go back in the morning. I'll explain, you know, I was tired and sue me. So I come down early in the morning and I move my car and I but I first wanted because I'm sure this lady came down to, to complain before I got up. So I went down to the front desk and I said, Look, the lady upstairs was there when I got my back in my car at three in the morning, blah, 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 blah. And he says, No, there's no one living upstairs. That's been closed for years. And I said, No, there's this lady up there and she was complaining to me through the window, blah on again and, and he says to me, he goes, now lots of people have seen this lady but there's nobody up there. <laughs> <laughs> that was my that was she was the parking police lady that was my ghost. So
2: Well I think maybe we all need for our conscience a parking police one. <laughs>
1: <right>? <laughs> uh, let's switch gears again and and cuz you know cognizant of the time we have tell us about Susan Saxman
2: Hey, it's Susan Saxman. She changed my life. Now, she's somebody who doesn't just see ghosts. This was a woman who had to teach herself as a child to tell the living and the dead apart. And she went to, she terrified her parents as a child. And her parents had lots of secrets and she could see them all. And that terrified them. And they were so scared of her, they weren't very nice to her. And when she finally went to, I guess it was kindergarten or first grade, she came home and said to her mother, you know, mom, all the other kids have lots of helpers around them. I don't have any helpers. So her mother marched in to say to the teacher, you know, how come my daughter doesn't have any helpers? And the teacher said, it's me and 30 kids in the room. Your daughter's telling lies. And that was sort of the beginning for her of realizing she... I ended up writing a book with her, and, and and I write in this book about my meeting with her, which is a profound encounter. I'd been working with the dead for about 20 years before I met her, but the dead really became real for me with her. And I ended up writing a book about her life called The Reluctant Psychic with her and traveling around the country with her, which was a trip. And she said she would two things. One, she's not like anybody I've ever met. Like, you know, maybe she's a reincarnation of the oracle at Delphi. She's an astounding psychic. But also, she used to say everyone's psychic, but most people can gate out that information and I can't. And what I learned being with her was how much of what she did was happening to me and I was ignoring it. And I think that's what's true of most of us. We're all having these experiences. We're all encountering those. We're having precognitive dreams. We're seeing the future. We're we're in having encounters with the dead. But we've learned to kind of be modern people and to gate out most of these experiences. I think a lot of the interest right now, even and psychedelics is a desire to get rid of some of that gating. I always say, just work with the dead with me, and you don't need any drugs. I can show you what it's like to do it without drugs.
1: Yeah, this is your brain on the dead. Right. Of this is exactly. your brain on drugs.
2: And 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 it's more reliable and more intimate, actually. So with
1: that in mind, let me ask you another question, because you and I share uh Along with Clark, I think, uh, but but certainly you and I share this deep love for the mm. Virgin Mary. Yes, and we both see her uh, as one of the faces of the Divine Mother. Yes, and yeah, you you have this wonderful story in the book about finding the statue of Mary <laughs> that Clark had this vision and you you've, you found this statue. Uh, that, that, the story itself was was really wonderful you can you can tell us that if you like in a in a short version, but I'm also interested and, and I think our listeners would be interested in why do you think the mother is so important at this time in our history?
2: Well, let me say what, I mean I think you know it's been a journey for me with the Dark Mother, and I understand her as the earth you know, as her body is the body of the earth, I understand her as the cosmos, the mother of the cosmos, the dark matter of the the universe, the womb womb of the cosmos. And I also think that she is the body of the dead. Just, you know, Clark and I say we sometimes write about the dark, the dirt, and the dead, and they're all one. I think when we die, my own experience is that, I mean, I, I think we have many lives many, many, many lives. And I don't. I think that, that living inside the short story of a human life has made us very violent and very disconnected from everything that is. And if we look at the world around us, it's not lived in straight lines. It's lived in vast circles. You know, the moon is a circle that comes and goes. So are the tides. So is the planetary orbits. The, the Milky Way itself is a circle circling in the cosmos. And you know, we used to know that our lives, our souls were circular. We were born, we died, and we returned. And if we can claim again the wisdom of the long story of our souls, I think, and and this is this is what this book is really about for me and and my next book, too, is we begin to remember that we've all been each other's mothers. We've been men and women. We've been plants and animals. we've been we have multitudes within us but we have all been each other's mothers, and everything that is has been our mother. And to remember that, to see with the eyes of the dead and to hear with the eyes of the dead is to remember that fundamental truth that we've all held each other as mothers. And how would we treat each other and treat other beings and treat the earth if we remembered that? You know, right now, our ecocidal experiment with civilization has brought the entire planet to the brink of extinction and you know it. it's a short story with a bad ending and there are more generous ways we have to begin to be- remember that this is a long story and that we have to help protect the life in this planet as mothers you know the the call her the mother, call her Mary, call her Miriam, call her Freya, Kali, I don't know, whatever name you like to call her. She has so many names, just as there's so many different kinds of land. You know, there's the mother of the mountains and the mothers of the ocean and the mothers of the desert. And whatever you call her, she's calling to us to to remember who we are in the world, to remember the long story of our souls and our entanglement with each other. So why is she appearing right now? Because she's fighting really hard for the life of this planet. And and why are the dead trying so hard to get her attention? Because they want to help us remember who we really are. So we'll take care of each other and take care of all that is.
1: I get the sense that it's... I, I mean, I, know, I don't think you mean it this way, but the way I'm... Maybe the only way I can process it is to understand when you say, you know, why are the dead calling to us? Why are they? All of it is the mother, and and it's this. I don't. I was going to use Listen, the word death. I'll,
2: I'll, I'll say something kind of radical, which is, mm. if you have, if you've actually been a mother, you know that mothers never want one mother in the room; they want as many mothers as possible. Okay. You know, it's awful being a mother on your own at the end of the day. It's just terrible. And I think that if you look back in cultures all over the world, if you go to the Kogi people in Colombia, they don't have one mother. They have nine mothers. If you look at the as early Icelandic mythology, nine mothers, nine muses in Greece, the nine manifestations of Durga and Hinduism, why when you go back, you don't find a single mother, you find a multiplicity of mothers. And just like nature strives for diversity, nature is always trying to express a diversity of expression. It doesn't want one kind of apple, it wants a hundred kinds of apples. Civilization wants to homogenize and make one. Nature knows that resilience is diversity and the mother knows that too. The mother knows that the more mothers there are in a room, the easier it is on everybody. I want to see there be a lot more mothers in the room. I want a lot more mother goddesses. I want a lot more actual mothers. I dream of a world where everyone wants to be a mother, whether or not they're male or female or whatever gender they want to be, whatever their biological reality, whether they have children or not, what if everybody knew they'd been each other's mothers, wanted to be a mother? And that is the mother energy that I want and pray is returned to the world.
1: Very powerful. Very powerful. I want to end the podcast by having you read for us the last two paragraphs of your book. You know, I I opened the conversation with something from the early sentences of the book. I want to close the conversation with these last two paragraphs, which I think are so beautiful.
2: Each one of us followed a path to this moment, led by the star of our heart's desire. We arrived in this life with prayers on our lips, with parents and children we wanted to see again, with songs we wanted to sing, work we wanted to do, and stories we wanted to tell. No one is here by accident. No life is a waste of time or a mistake. In nature, nothing is useless. Nothing is thrown away. All becomes dirt. All becomes nourishment. All becomes life all over again. The dead will give us the confidence and the courage to step into the dark and look up at the vast black expanse of the universe. Some people believed that the heroes and heroines of old became stars when they died. Some are certain we ourselves are stardust. Perhaps it's all true. We have been stars. We will be stars. And the stars above us will guide us wherever we go.
1: Our guest today, Perdita Finn, is the author of Take Back the Magic, Conversations with the Unseen World. You can learn more about Pradita's work at the Way of the Rose website, wayoftherose.org. Pradita, thanks so much for joining us on the Spirituality and Health podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one at SpiritualityHealth.com. From everyone at Spirituality and Health magazine, we thank you for your support.